Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroth. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions, and we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today I'm joined by Colin Campbell, Associate Director at Livingstone Partners. Livingstone Partners is an independent M&A advisory firm with a proven track record of delivering exceptional outcomes for private and public businesses and financial sponsors. Colin recently published a piece titled, Does an Old Bull Need to Learn New Tricks?, which outlines possible changes in the M&A sector for tech, which is counterintuitive to the current thinking of late of the unending robust market for M&A in general and tech in particular. And if slowdown is in the cards, well, what do middle market companies do about it? Colin, thanks for joining me and welcome to the program. Thank you, Patrick. I appreciate it. Uh, before we get into this report that uh, focuses largely on the IT services companies, tell me about you, our audience of context for you. Is how did you get to this point in your career? Sure. So I'm a, a multi-time entrepreneur. I've started a couple of businesses over the years. Um, I've been an operator. I was in private wealth management for many years, uh, focused on estate planning, asset management. Um, and I think at some point, uh, I, I had had experience from a private wealth management standpoint, uh, guiding my clients through mergers and acquisitions, and decided that that was really an interesting part of the business, and I think an aspect that really sort of captured my attention. And so at some point, I pivoted towards a M&A role um, coming out of USC. So I did USC undergrad, uh, Marshall School of Business, and then graduate school also at USC, Marshall School of Business. And now in my spare time, when I'm not advising middle market businesses on, on sell-side transactions, I'm also an adjunct professor at the Marshall School of Business. Well, you've kept yourself pretty busy there. Now, with this report you recently published, Does an Old Bull Need to Learn New Tricks, which we'll link to at our show notes here at rubiconins.com. What led you to focus on the report? Where did this come from? And, and give us an overall genesis of what led up to this report. Yeah, so we spend a lot of our time talking to business owners that are contemplating a transaction in the next 36 months. And at the same time, by virtue of the, the processes that we run and then staying current on the market, we're talking to a lot of buyers. And what we find is that there's some interesting trends going on right now, not only from a valuation perspective, um, but also from the overall economic timing, the catalyst as to what's driving some of these transactions, and felt like in many instances, there's a bit of a disconnect between sellers and buyers and the thought processes. So we thought it made sense to do a little deeper dive, look at it from a historical context. And so we pulled all the transaction data for the last 10 years in the IT services space and tried to start drilling down into what what sort of um, conclusions can we start to extrapolate from the data? And I think what we found is that, you know, there's, there's a longer term trend, not only in deal size, uh, and, and by that I should say multiple, and also deal count, where there's the beginning impressions that while we've been in a very, very long bull market, 
that there are indications that things are starting to slow down and potentially turn. And from our perspective, our clients are generally operators that are looking for a sell-side transaction. You know, there's important considerations to take account for when you're thinking about what could happen to the economy and specifically what could happen to your particular sector in the next 12 to 24 months. So the idea behind the article was let's start to suss some of that out. Let's start to talk about what some of those trends are. And obviously the actual implications are going to be very specific company to company, operator to operator. But it's important to start thinking now for many of these business owners, how does that actually impact their specific business given their specific situation and their, their business's nuances? Well, where you're uh, targeting this with technology, when people talk about technology, it's as diverse as somebody talking about retail. You can have everything from widgets to uh, items over at Tiffany's in, in the scope of the, the wide variety of things. And what I liked about what you had here is you weren't trying to broaden your research for all things to all people in tech. You focused on a real finite specific uh, group with the service providers. Tell us about that. Is that just because those were the most numerous um, uh, classes out there or is there a preference there? You know, uh, let's describe the, the categories of tech that you looked at on the service provider side. And then why those why those uh, tranches? Yeah, and Patrick, you make a great point, right? I mean, as you look across all of the various industries, even some of the most traditional ones, you're seeing more and more technology being infused in these businesses, and that's ultimately impacting those valuations and, and those transactions. I think the reason why I tried to focus is because you can't you can't look at all of it in one fell swoop. It, it has to be distilled down more than that. And so where I spend most of my time is within the, the broader landscape of business services, we've drilled down into IT services. And that's really what this is focused on. Beyond that, I spend even more time really thinking about IT consulting and other services businesses, which is one of the three legs to the stool, if you will, in this IT services landscape. Um, that tends to be where we spend a lot of time talking to business owners that are operating on one of the cloud platforms, that are providing consulting services, that are leveraging technology to impact other businesses, um, that are managed services providers that are actively shifting their business towards a slightly different mix from maybe an older, more traditional consulting business. And so that seemed particularly relevant to my experience and where we were um, spending a lot of our time these days. So when we take this broader IT services space and we drill down into data processing and outsource services being one tranche, internet services and infrastructure being the second tranche, and then IT consulting and, and services being the third, what we find is that there's each one has their own DNA, their own trends, and it's important to think about, even though they do overlap, overlap in some instances, where specifically a business would lie, and then that's going to drive, significantly drive, how they ultimately become viewed and, and valued in the market. Why don't you give us a quick uh, synopsis of each? What what is data processing, and then how it what the predictions you are based on the report from what you you observe? Uh, segregate that from internet services, and then segregate that from IT consulting. Sure. 
So data processing and outsourced services businesses are what we might think of as your traditional uh, data, big data business, right? They're dealing in a lot of numbers. They're dealing, dealing in a lot of data points. They're trying to draw out really unique insights from vast quantities of data. And I think what we see here in some of the analysis is that the number of transactions in this space are somewhat limited. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. Um, I think you have to look at deal volume in concert with deal value. And what you find is that for many of the historical years, the deal value has been very volatile. So multiples in this particular space have been very high and very low. And I think that's a function of the limited number of transactions that you see in a space. And so it's a, it's a common interaction, right, between supply and demand that when there's an imbalance in the market, it's going to drive values either very high or very low. Recently, we're seeing a downtick in multiples in the data processing space. And I think there is an argument to be made that as data is becoming ever more prevalent, and I think there's plenty of, of sources out there that say we're generating more data today on a daily basis than we were generating monthly, annually, not that long ago. And the rate of data creation is becoming such that to just be able to analyze the data is not becoming as unique and it's becoming almost maybe more, dare I say, commoditized to take data points, compress them together and try and pull out some insights. It's becoming much, much more difficult to find something that is truly unique and insightful versus something that's become almost a little bit more regular way. So I think that's driving down some of the values in that space. But there, there are so few transactions in that sector that I think there is room for someone to come out if they truly have something unique, whether it be unique insights or a very differentiated data set that is truly proprietary to their business, then I think that drives meaningful value in that particular sector. I, I hate to interrupt on one thing, though, with the data processing. And just a, a quick question uh, for some of us less tech-savvy tech folks. With the data processing, you're processing, you're, you're handling raw data, organizing, or analyzing that. Does that then lead toward artificial intelligence, or is, is AI a, a factor, uh, a part of data processing? It's a factor of it. I think it de then depends okay. on how you, and, and that's where you know, part of the complexity with trying to distill down a large data set is that it tends to get a little bit murky around some of the edges. And so there are companies that are, are effectively both a consulting and advisory practice, but leverage AI and have data processing capabilities. So if we think about it more in its pure form, I think the data processing itself tends to be more data collection, data aggregation, um, and data analysis, and less the true cutting edge AI. Now, the more technology infused and the more cutting edge, the more advanced you are, certainly that pushes you towards a higher value because now you're talking about something that is truly unique, it's truly differentiated, and typically has some kind of um, moat around it in terms of it's difficult to replicate, it's one of a kind, right? It's something that is not 
uh, readily available across the market. Internet services and infrastructure. This is really going to be when you think of e-commerce, when you think of um, online and what I would consider information services businesses. So this is going to be oftentimes a B2C model um, and it's, it's really online, online based. I think these businesses, again, from a volume, from a volume standpoint, um, there are fewer trades that go on year in and year out. And the range of size of business is very, very broad. And so that also creates a fair amount of volatility in terms of the valuation of those businesses. Um, so right now, historically, you call it the last three years, these businesses have been trading high single digits. And uh, year to date, we've seen actually a limited number of transactions to validate any sort of thesis around where they're currently trading. They really tend to be predicated upon what is the type of traffic the business is generating? What is the type of service that they're providing? What is the information in the case of online information commerce that they're providing? And here again, it blurs the line a little bit. Where are they getting the data from? How are they aggregating it? How unique is it? Um, are, there, are there more proprietary insights that they're able to pull out and then deliver to the consumer from their data set? So it's, it's a, tends to be a bit more volatile space just because there are fewer trades. And then we have the IT consulting. Correct. So IT consulting, this is going to be the bulk of the market. And I think one reason being is that it tends to be more of a traditional consulting model. You have a high headcount. Oftentimes there's a little less technology uh, development. There's a little less proprietary technology. Um, in this category, you might see companies that are considered value-added uh, resellers. Um, these are called VARs or IT consulting businesses that are truly doing what's considered the lift and shift, so helping businesses that are in more traditional industries integrate into the cloud. Um, these are also managed service providers, which tend to be outsourced IT service providers. So if a company, maybe an industrial business, that is very tried and true, very traditional in its operations, but is now moving its back office and ERP systems into the cloud and is looking to create a mobile application to empower its workforce out in the field. This would probably be an IT services or IT consulting business that is helping them to do the integration and then build out that application and empower that workforce. And even though Unlike the other two categories, you have a lot more people involved uh, in terms of when you said the headcount, which, which uh, was striking to me. You are saving, a, an IT consulting firm is saving uh, a business by doing the work of hundreds of people with only two or three, but you still have two or three. That's two or three more people than a data processing company may have to engage. Is IT consulting as a business is the value and also the cost driven by the, the, the depth and scope of the headcount? Or is it a lot more tangible with people than, than technology? It is, right? Technology tends to lend itself to being highly scalable. You tend to see that in growth rates. Uh, you tend to see that in margins. And so in the IT consulting business, there's maybe a bit more stability. Um, certainly in the valuations of the companies, there tends to be more stabi stability, partly because there's more deals to be to be done. Um, there are, 
you know, there's the argument to be made that there is a lower barrier to entry into the IT consulting space because practically anybody can hang up their shingle and say that they're an IT consultant. What I would argue is that there's a greater barrier to excellence where there are a limited number of folks that have truly been able to differentiate themselves and build that requisite skill set that sets them apart from everyone else when it comes to cloud integration, app development, um, managed services, and really providing something that is value add to the end consumer. So in this case, it's a B2B model where data processing or technology as a whole is going to be highly, highly leverageable in terms that it's very scalable. You get a lot of operating leverage. The more you can build in um, from a sales standpoint, typically the much more profitable the business becomes. In IT consulting, because there is typically a larger headcount, that it's it's oftentimes about billable hours. It's oftentimes a story of project versus recurring revenue, and that has a huge impact on value as businesses are looking to go to market. This is a little bit off topic from your report, so I do apologize for this, but what in your analysis, I'm just curious, who was doing the acquiring of each of these categories? If, you, if you're a data processing company, was it being bought by a larger data processing processing company or from other some strategic buyer that says we need that capability so we're going to bring you and we're going to take you away from the market and we're going to bring you in house what percentage of the the deals roughly involve that scenario where a strategic would go and take one of these three categories and bring it in house thus removing them from the rest of the market it's really been a mixed bag, and I think as you go year by year, it changes whether it's more of a financial buyer, uh, like a private equity group, or whether it's going to be a strategic buyer, like another operating business that's looking to bolt on new capabilities. And I think what we're seeing in some spaces is you've got very large, very large operators that are creating platforms right? Um, Microsoft mm-hmm. is the one that comes to mind. And they're creating an Azure platform. And what they're doing in many instances is they're out there buying businesses that have created unique technology or have captured large swaths of, of viewers, of users. And they're able to quickly onboard either the capabilities, the technology, or the traffic into their platform. And that carries significant value for them. They're not necessarily in the market of saying, we want to be a consultancy. They have plenty of businesses out there that are able to do that on their behalf. And that's where I think you see folks in the IT consulting space where there are a a large number of businesses that are operating with very good capabilities in the space, whether it be AWS, whether it be Microsoft Azure, whether it be one of the other cloud platforms, they're able to cater to clients and operate on those different platforms. Whereas, um, you know, in in data processing, in internet services, um, it's less about whether or not you're able to provide support services to a larger platform. It's really more about your capabilities. And I think when you see the economy has has been very strong for a, very, for a number of years, you've got strategic buyers that have built up a lot of capital. And much of that capital exists not only just on the balance sheet in terms of cash, but in many instances can be equity. 
And that's where as a seller, you need to be cognizant of what the consideration during the course of a transaction is going to be and how you're going to be compensated. Because in many instances, we're seeing strategic buyers, and this is across all three buckets, they can be very acquisitive and very aggressive, but oftentimes they're using their own, their own equity, which may or may not be considered overvalued at the time. Um, they may look at that equity and say, that's actually less expensive to me today than maybe cash would be. Very interesting. So now with this report, what were the major takeaways? You had mentioned early on about a disconnect. What's the biggest takeaway from this report? Yeah, so from a buyer's perspective, we're seeing there are strategic buyers that are very, very specific right now in where they're looking to allocate funds and spend money. And so they're typically coming out with very targeted investment theses. That is, they're looking for a particular type of asset, or in many instances, a particular asset, one type of business, one business in particular, that will augment their existing operations. When they get excited about a business, they're willing to move rather quickly, and they're willing to pay up for it. Remember, strategic companies are typically going to realize some kind of synergy, some kind of benefit from making an acquisition that a private equity company may not necessarily if they don't already own a business in the space. So strategic companies are able to be very aggressive and typically pay a premium for a business that they love, but they're going to be much, much more selective. Private equity companies right now are, they're cautious. I think they're looking at where we stand today in the economic cycle, and I think most, if not all of them, when we start talking about projections and estimates, they're looking at it from... I would even argue a, a fairly realistic perspective that is there's going to be a correction at some point down the road. Nothing goes up forever, right? Real estate didn't, the stock market does not. And so they're starting to bake in downside cases into a lot of their projections. What that's doing is that's, that's, that's changing their model, that's changing their financial return profile to say that they maybe aren't willing to get as aggressive. And so you're seeing that private equity companies are struggling a little bit to compete in those cases where there's a strategic company that's getting very, very excited about a particular asset. Now, there are still plenty of private equity companies out there with capital that have raised funds in the last couple of years that are looking to deploy that cash. And so they're being more thematic about their investment style. And I think that's where Again, in particular, I focus on the, the IT consulting space. Private equity companies are spending a lot of time thinking about particular platforms, whether that be Microsoft, whether that be Amazon. They're spending a lot of time thinking about what is the difference between project-based businesses and recurring revenue types of businesses, like a managed services provider, where there's a contractual agreement that they're going to get a certain amount of revenue every month from their end client. Right. That carries a lot more value to the operating entity and therefore to the private equity company when they can project out that revenue. They know it's coming every month. It's much more secure. And it gives them a lot more visibility into their long-term revenue. That has a significant impact on their valuations today. And that's where we're seeing transactions start to occur, I think, uh, more often and I think with higher values is when you can substantiate there's a high degree of recurring revenue. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think another consideration out there is it really depends on the the management or the owner founder of, of the businesses that are considering themselves uh, for an exit to, to sell their company. Would it be a strategic or private equity? One of those uh, things I recently le- learned about was that if you want to have an exit, you're a founder, you want to ride off into the sunset, sometimes uh, going to a strategic may make more sense because a lot of times a strategic will bring you in and they may be making some big significant changes in the short term with management. Whereas if you come on board with private equity, they want to keep the existing management in place to help them as they add value in other other areas. So uh, that's another consideration out there. Uh, with this this view of you know the possibility, of, particularly with uh, the financial buyers looking at building in possible downsides down the road and so forth, what steps should owners and founders take? I mean, this is a perspective that's out there. You can't guarantee outcomes across the board, but you need to plan for contingencies. What's your guide to them on what they should start thinking about? So I think the first step that we always take anytime we're talking to a new business owner is really to understand what is it that they want to accomplish? What is their desired outcome? And you talked about a business owner, whether or not he should sell to a strategic and sponsor based on his outcome. That's exactly right. And so is his goal to stay on and run the business for another five years? And does he want to transact in the next six months or 36 months? And I think that's an important consideration when you think about what are the next steps. I think first and foremost, I would, and and maybe I'm biased, but I would argue that maybe the right place to start is you start with someone like me or Livingstone or whomever that can offer you advice as to what's currently driving the market, what's creating value, and what are those things that you need to be thinking about. Because we've seen businesses that try to run quickly for a transaction, thinking that the timing is right, something's happened in their lives, and they want to go now. But the problem is, is that if their house is not in order, running that fast, they end up stubbing their toe, they trip, and it creates bigger issues for them during the course of the transaction. Versus taking a step back, taking three months, six months, and making sure they've got their house in order. Now, Patrick, you and I both know that a time the time kills all deals, right? So it's a trade-off between do you want to wait six months, 12 months, do the work necessary to make sure that your finances are clean, you understand what all the data is. And that's probably one of the biggest issues is that a lot of companies we see, um, certainly that are privately owned, haven't really thought about what are buyers going to look for when they come in and do diligence? And do I have all of the data compiled, reconciled? Do I have all of my KPIs in place? And having a conversation like that with someone like Livingstone up front, I think can go a long way to making sure that you have a smoother process, which shortens the the overall timeline to actually getting a deal done and ultimately improves the probability that not only you get a deal, but that you get the value you're looking for. I think one of the things is, is that uh, a mindset that sellers really should have is you should begin with the end in mind. You know, what is the outcome you want? How are you going to get there? And I think probably what really is the big killer, uh, time killer for deals in in my experience has been 
when you're a seller, you're disorganized, you don't have the right answers, you're not prepared for a serious buyer to come in. Even an unsolicited buyer comes in. If you are not serious and are equipped to respond to them proactively, things can drag on. And what the, the biggest thing that happens with the time is those multiples of that valuation just starts uh, uh, shrinking. And the longer it takes because you're not prepared and you, and you may have the right answers, but it's not formatted in a way that the buyer is prepared to receive them, that it, it, it just kills everything. And I think that's the great value you add. And it, it's almost like staging a house for an open house. You're going to, you're going to incur some expenses to paint and furnish the house and get it all souped up and decluttered and everything. And for every dollar that you pay an expert in doing that, you probably reap 25 to $30 in return. I, I think that's I think that's very fair. I think that's very fair. And to use that same analogy, you probably aren't going to to accept the first offer that comes in off the street unsolicited. You're going to want to run an auction. And I think that's again a value add that folks like Livingstone, folks like my team and I can provide, which is we make sure that that not only is your house in order, but that it's being presented correctly in order to maximize value and help guide you through that process and that transaction. One other thing I would think about, and this is because I, I'm, we're based here in California and I'm up Silicon Valley and you're down, down in Southern California, but the M&A community, particularly in tech, is not that huge. And so I think another value you probably add is not only do you know the market out there, but you know buyers and which buyers are serious and which buyers are kind of grinders, wheel spinners. And that can be particularly helpful. Correct. So we maintain, Livingstone's been around for more than 20 years. And all of us have been at prior firms prior to Livingstone. And so we've got a very good sense as to who's serious versus who's just tire kickers. And we know how people behave in the course of a process. And I think that goes a long way to lending value when you're in the throes of a deal and you're trying to compare different types of bids, you know which one uh, has more teeth to it, has more meat to it, and you have a sense as to how people are going to behave during the course of the process. And I think that's, that's to your point, right? That's the value of having a more seasoned team behind you guiding you through the process. Well, what's, what's the ideal profile for an ideal client for you, uh, for Livingstone in general, but for, for you and your practice in, in California? I know you're not limited just to the, state, the Golden State, but give, give us a quick uh, profile. Yeah. So Livingstone has offices uh, across the U.S., Chicago and, and L.A., and then we have offices throughout Europe. And so a fair amount of our deals are, in fact, cross-border. I spend most of my time working on sell-side transactions, so typically business owners that are looking to exit their business or bring in capital, whether it be uh, private equity or whether it be debt financing. And so generally, they're, they're located in North America. I uh, tend to look at businesses that have EBITDA between, call it five and $25 million. That typically translates to uh, enterprise value. Uh, we have a strong restructuring practice out of our Chicago office for companies that maybe need a little bit more help, have a little bit more of a story to them. Um, those businesses are probably in the 20 to $25 million enterprise range. And then once we get healthier sell side, 
you know, we're typically looking at businesses that are 50 million upwards to 500 million in enterprise value. From a sector standpoint, I'll add, I think, where I spend most of my time is, as I said, the IT consulting and services businesses. And so that tends to be anything in the IoT space, managed services providers or MSP space, uh, anything that is cloud-related. Uh, those tend to be uh, where I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, talking to buyers, talking to sellers, and tend to have a pretty good grasp of what's going on on the day-to-day. Um, we've got a number of transactions that we've completed here recently that have been in that space that have gone a long way to helping inform, I think, what is in the article, but just, again, our sort of industrial knowledge of, of the space. Well, and I also think just your initial background being in a wealth management and estate planning, uh, you definitely convey uh, a, a perspective of looking for the welfare of the owner, founder, or investor. In this transaction and helping them transition either to short term or long term. So I think you have an experience of beginning with the end in mind, which is very helpful. Colin, how can our listeners find you? Yeah, Patrick. So you can email me at Campbell, spelled like the soup, at livingstonepartners.com, or you can reach me in my office, 424 282 3709. Thanks very much. This has been a great, insightful look into the possible outcome with uh, a slowing tech space, but just how diverse it is. And there are ups and downs throughout. And the best way to do this is navigate with a, a professional who cares about your outcome. Colin, thank you very much for joining us today. And we'll talk again. Thank you, Patrick.